MSF says that the disease is seen as mysterious and scares people off. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. stocks have retreated from Monday's record closing levels. U.S. car sales and factory orders rise and retail sales here in Hong Kong were down almost 10% in April. Today on Money for Nothing, we put the spotlight back on India. Rajiv Malik, senior economist at CLSA, talks to us about what to expect from the country during the Modi years. Then we'll talk with Ricky Mui of Robert Walters about the rise of job opportunities in various professions across Asia. And finally, Christine Mann Smith of Easy Peasy Parties joins us to talk about the business of parties. But first, a look at today's top stories. U.S. stocks dipped in thin volume with the Dow and the S&P 500 retreating from Monday's record closing levels as traders found few reasons to buy following a string of gains. Here's Jeremy Siegel, finance professor at the Wharton Business School. The big news this year is the drop in, in yields, long-term interest rates, the 10-year, uh, you know, at two and a half. No one thought that was going to happen when we were over three uh, on the last trading day last year. And uh, remember, bonds are the biggest asset class in the world, the biggest competitor for stocks. Mm-hmm. And when you see the yields you know, go down on long-term bonds, that makes stocks even more attractive. The Dow fell 21 points to 16,722. The S&P 500 was down fractionally to 1924, while the Nasdaq dropped three points to 4,234. Well, U.S. automakers have reported higher-than-expected U.S. new car sales of 1.6 million in May. Rising consumer demand is prompting economists to lift their U.S. economic growth forecasts. Here's David Melendy from the Associated Press. Many car buyers who stayed home during the rough winter were expected to return to showrooms last month, and it seems they did. Chrysler is reporting a 17% jump in sales, Nissan sales surged 19%, and even GM, despite major recalls, had a 13% increase in U.S. sales last month. A compilation of manufacturers' results by Reuters showed an 11.3% rise, probably its best annualized growth since the 2008 recession. Well, closer to home, retail sales in Hong Kong were down almost 10% in April, the sharpest monthly fall since 2009. It was also the third consecutive month of contraction. The government has attributed the steep fall to a plunge in the sale of high-value goods such as jewelry, watches and valuable gifts, and it warned that the decline may reflect a moderation in visitor spending after a prolonged period of growth. Chief Executive C.Y. Lung said that he hoped the latest retail figures would stimulate further discussion on whether Hong Kong should take steps to reduce the number of mainlanders visiting the territory. Tony Flores has more on the figures. The provisional estimate of a 9.8% drop is due largely to a dramatic fall in the sales of expensive items such as jewellery, watches, clocks and valuable gifts, which fell by nearly 40% compared to a year earlier. 
Sales of electrical goods and photographic equipment were also down. A government spokesman said the fall-off in April may partly reflect some moderation in visitor spending after a prolonged period of brisk growth. Looking ahead, the spokesman said favourable job and income conditions should provide some support to local consumer sentiment, but the near-term outlook of retail sales business will continue to be clouded by changing visitor spending patterns. The government says it will closely monitor how the factors and changes in the external environment would affect retail business going forward. The Indian economy grew at less than 5% in the 2013-2014 period. It was the second straight year of sub-5% growth and the slowest in more than a quarter of a century. The sharp slowdown coupled with high inflation has not only impacted India's corporate sector, but it has also limited job prospects for the country's growing population. So the question is, then, how will the new Prime Minister Narendra Modi take the country out of this economic slump these next five years of his term? It's time to welcome our first guest of the morning, Rajiv Malik, Senior Economist at CLSA. He joins us on the phone now from Singapore. Good morning, Rajiv. Morning, there. So great to have you on the show. And, um, you know, starting with all of the jubilant uh, mood of the elections, uh, things seem to be calming down in India now, this, you know, really turning point in history. Um, it seems like perhaps the party is over, but, you know, economically speaking, it's probably just begun. So uh, tell us what is on Mr. Modi's economic agenda, or I should say Mr. Jaitley, the finance minister's economic agenda. Well, I'd say the economic party has really yet to start. I mean, all that you've seen is expectations uh, rising, understandably so, given both the strong mandate and uh, the rather embarrassing state of the economy that the previous government uh, is leaving behind. Um, I think the work is going to be cut out for the new government. Uh, Mr. Jaitley, who's the finance minister, will be presenting the full budget uh, sometime in early July. Um, I think what needs to be done from a macro perspective has been known for the last two or three years. The challenge has always been the ability of the previous government to push through some of the stuff. And that's where the biggest improvement as far as the hope element comes about. Um, Mr. Modi's credentials are much more uh, favored towards being a very effective economic administrator. Mm. And part of India's idiosyncratic slowdown in the last two or three years was simply because of the policy paralysis. So while it will require good interaction with states, uh, I think the new team is pretty much geared up to deliver. So, you know, on that point, right, uh, Mr. Modi having uh, sort of shown proof that he is an effective economic administrator. I mean, you know, the, the words, the trendy words that are talked about now um, as a focal point for Mr. Jetley and Mr. Modi over the next five years are growth, containing inflation, creating gainful employment. Um, and Mr. Modi certainly points to the Gujarat model. He was the chief minister of the state for a very long time. But The question is, in a country like India, uh, is it realistic to be able to replicate this model throughout the country? I mean, one of the challenges uh, in a country like this is for the federal government to build consensus with the states. Yes? I think, yes, that would be challenging for sure. But it doesn't mean that some of the finer positive points uh, cannot be adopted at all. I mean, bear in mind... Like any other state, uh, Gujarat has done some things very well and others less so. Now, whether you can call it a model or not can be openly debated. (laughs) Um, But the important point is, uh, purely from an administrative governance perspective, those 
minor points, positive points, can clearly be replicated. Um, your indication about that look interaction with state level uh, communities is going to be more challenging <laughs> is uh, very well made. Um, but that's a challenge. It doesn't mean it can't be done. Mm. And don't forget, uh, unlike the previous Prime Minister, Mr. Modi himself, comes uh, after having been a chief minister for a long time and that too of a fairly successful state. Uh, so I think he is going to reach out more to other states and make them very much party to the broader decision-making process and have more effective communication, something you know, which was uh, missing in uh, the previous government's efforts. Absolutely. Um, and coming to some of these buzzwords that are sort of uh, on everybody's mind right now, I mean, it, inflation. Uh, inflation is at an alarming, you know, 8% or thereabouts. And uh, Raghuram Rajan uh, of the RBI might find himself wanting to raise rates. Um, that's the indication, you know, at, at some point. Now, could the Modi government initially worsen inflation if he does indeed decide to kickstart new investment? you know, generating demand for capital goods before, you know, any reforms can actually increase local supply? Well, there are two parts. Um, one is uh, some of the near-term low-hanging fruit in terms of injecting more uh, food grain supply into the market can actually be done, and that will have a positive impact, at least for food inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you rightly point out, some of the supply-side measures will take time, um, but I think markets, investors, consumers will actually still take heed from those uh, steps, even if the results are going to be somewhat uh, later in coming. Uh, And finally, um, you know, the growth inflation balance in India is uh, fairly fine at this point, which is why it is very important that the fiscal lever is pulled back, which in turn will create more room for the private sector to step in. So, you know, it is a bit of a myth in India's case that given the state of the economy, an expansionary fiscal policy would be most helpful. Um, Ironically, at least in my assessment, a more disciplined, contractionary fiscal policy at the headline level, which still leaves room for the government to step up capital expenditure, would be the right way to go. Uh, The politically sensitive issue is going to be cut back on the subsidy front. Uh, And that is where, hopefully, given the strong mandate, uh, Mr. Modi and Mr. Jaitley will show their backbones. So absolutely. Are these some of the things then that we would expect to see uh, in the budget that is to be released in July? And what are you expecting would be the real differences between, uh, you know, the budget to be released in July versus the interim budget that was released in February? Well, a couple of very important points. One, um, you know, an outgoing government presenting a budget, an interim budget, and a fresh incoming government doing so, which is going to be around for five years, presents completely different optics. Mm -hmm. Um, Two, I think the government will commit itself to a fairly credible uh, fiscal correction, uh, good quality fiscal correction path, and that is uh, going to go down quite well. Um, third is uh, it will offer at least a roadmap in terms of some of the critical reforms on the fiscal front, goods mm-hmm. and services tax, etc., which are very important for India. Um, and finally, is going to be the broader understanding that, look, many of the supply constraints will be addressed gradually. Now, these are not things that can be done overnight, but as long as the government is indicating a roadmap, uh, that should at least keep uh, expectations well anchored. And why is something like the GST, the goods and services tax, so critical? I mean, in the sense, how is it different from other kinds of taxes? Uh, well, but- it- 
Honesty is a value-added tax, and the beauty of it is it improves uh, tax compliance. Uh, in India's case, uh, it has uh, several other advantages in the sense here is a large domestic market which really, for tax reasons, is never treated as a single market um, because of the differences at state-level taxes which hinder or you know provide less of an incentive for the movement of goods across states. So once this GST is put in place, India becomes a unified market. Uh, there's a fair amount of efficiency gains that the corporate sector will gain at the same time uh, as the government she sees a big pickup as far as its own coffers are concerned. Mm. Now, Rajiv, what about the price of gold? Um, Mr. Jetley has been talking about cutting import duties to around 2 to 4% from the current, I think, 15%. Um, could this happen and could it offset a rise in the world price of gold? Well, RBI has already started reversing uh, some of the restrictions it had put in place uh, to try and check gold imports into India simply because they were contributing to a lot of destabilization as far as the balance of payments was concerned, which in turn was impacting the currency. Um, so given that uh, you know a lot of that healing has already taken place, um, more restrictions are going to be lifted gradually. Mm. Um, so I think that is something that should, uh, people should be prepared for over the course of the year. Investors in gold take note. India is one of the largest consumers. India and China, two largest consumers of gold in the world. Um, Rajiv, so, you know, if, if rumor is to be believed, then, uh, you know, the Modi government is uh, clearly in. Of, of course, they're here for the next five years. We know that. But but it appears that their objective is actually to be in office for two terms. Um, given that, if rumor is to be believed, if, if we are to believe that, um, what would you say might be sort of the near-term economic goals he'd like to achieve in this first term versus perhaps something longer-term, more far-reaching, you know, if, he's, if they're still around in, you know, years 5 well, to 10? Well, the, the most important aspect has to be not to be myopic in policymaking, um, which is, again, the kind of constraint that the previous government got into in the last 18 months or so. Um, uh, Modi et al. will have much more time. So the idea is to create or build a pretty solid foundation um, rather than, uh, you know, start uh, easing things too soon, too quickly. Uh, once you build that strong foundation uh, and growth begins to recover, you are actually able to ride that through the next uh, election cycle, which in itself will be a positive development. So, you know, along the way, reforms, etc., would have to happen, but it is important that the foundation itself is built on a pretty solid uh, footing. Uh, that would be the biggest payback. So with reforms, perhaps an uptick in things like manufacturing, foreign domestic investment, do you see India becoming more like a China during the Modi years? Well, you know, if you mean more like a China that growth will accelerate, yes. Uh, but India and China are two completely different uh, economies, political mm -hmm. systems. Um, one of the tectonic shifts in Asia that's taken place, taking place is, or will take place, is that China's growth structurally has to slow down simply because it's had its day in the sun. India, on the other hand, is a largely supply-constrained economy, and with some of these more sensible supply-side measures to come through, its growth can actually accelerate. Um, so, you know, will we see India at some point uh, within the next decade growing faster than China? I certainly think so. Good news for all. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Rajiv Malik, Senior Economist at CLSA. And we'll be back to talk about job growth in Asia right after this.
Well, speaking of gold, the price of gold is currently 1,245 US dollars per ounce. So uh, uh, if you were listening to what Rajiv had to say, and if it is true that they do cut the prices, uh, um, cut the import duties of gold in India, it could just uh, affect the price of gold all over the world. So investors, uh, take note. Well, with all this talk about growth, the one thing that people across Asia are looking for is job growth. Uh, we're joined now by Ricky Mui, a director at Robert Walters, to discuss the findings of their Asia Job Index, which is a widely used tool that could give us some clues about this. Good morning, Ricky. Good morning, Renita. Thank you for joining us today. And uh, tell us, what is the Asia Job Index and how does it work? Sure. Uh, the Robert Walters Asia Job Index tracks the number of job advertisements uh, on a daily basis across executive appointments in key newspapers and leading on-job uh, boards, mainly in Hong Kong, Japan, Malaysia, Singapore, South Korea and China. Basically, it's a highly regarded uh, and used uh, um, uh, facility to benchmark job growth in Asia, and it's used in many reports uh, in trade media around Asia. Is that right? Okay, so tell us then, Ricky, are jobs growing in Asia? Well, if you compare um, Q1 last year uh, to this year, uh, there's largely been positive annual growth of around about 23% in job volumes compared to last year, which means that we are seeing signs of recovery. Um, although uh, the outlook is very cautious and conservative. Um, if you look at the countries which uh, showed most positive um, job growth uh, compared to last year, mainly it's Singapore with 38% job growth, uh, Malaysia 27% and China 25%. Uh, close to that is uh, uh, Hong Kong with 11% and Japan with 5%. The only country that suffered a negative job growth was South Korea at negative 3%. Interesting. So um, why was that? Or, or fill our listeners in on sort of the details behind that a little bit, if you could. Yeah, sure. I mean, in terms of South Korea, it's quite interesting because the economy is, is still growing and it's a modest economic growth. But what I, we believe is the uh, recruitment market is still developing there. Um, so the market conditions haven't changed that much. But in relation to uh, some of the other jurisdictions, what we found is the largest increase in actual sectors have been uh, product logistics operations, so supply chain, where there's been 54% um, growth in this. And this is really due to Asia strengthening its position in manufacturing as a manufacturing hub, and uh, mainly in China, where they're still developing and uh, uh, experiencing large growth. The smallest increase in sector tends to be engineering and technician jobs, which only increased by 7%. Um, and this may be due to the fact that there's lack of good quality technical engineers or engineers wanting to move into other roles. So you mean to say that in South Korea, it's not necessarily that the jobs aren't there, but the... You, the recruiting system is not as good as it is. Exactly, ah, exactly. So, um, interesting. Yeah, with with South Korea, I mean, a lot of the focus is small to medium-sized international companies um, that are starting to actively recruit. But uh, to be honest, South Korea is still developing its recruitment market. Interesting. So what sectors are we seeing most of the growth happening in? I mean, if, if people are out there sort of looking for jobs, because uh, this goes back to what are the areas they should be training in? Sure, right. definitely. Um, if you look at Hong Kong, um, the most growth was in accounting and finance, which uh, was uh, increased by 17%. And this is due to regulatory reporting requirements, mainly in luxury retail, pharmaceutical sourcing, professional services. So that's the key, um, one of the key areas of growth in Hong Kong. 
if you look outside of Hong Kong, uh, China's, China, um, who even though uh, it, it's the lowest GDP um, in the recent years, um, their most uh, growth was in supply chain and logistics once again. And this is quite outstanding. It's 56% growth. So even though the manufacturing industry has been more challenging this year, the, stex, the sector still remains strong. Mm-hmm. And this is mainly due to profitability from product development, cost reduction, streamlining logistics. Um, if you focus on some of the other countries, um, Malaysia, um, the most growth was actually pharma and medical services, 71% growth, uh, which is quite amazing. Um, and this is a strong demand for lawyers or medical professional sales, for example, in these areas. And finally, Singapore um, also showed uh, uh, quite strong growth in relation to legal compliance, 52% growth. And this is really mainly due to tightening of regulations in financial services, um, a heavy demand for risks, internal audit, compliance professionals. Uh, if you have a look at in Hong Kong as well, um, there's a lot of regulations um, uh, from the SFC and HKMA, and they're always in the newspaper every day. Uh, so that's the reason why you know the financial services legal and compliance sector is on the increase as well. And Ricky, how much of a factor would you say language is uh, in all of these jobs that are out there? I know that uh, increasingly in Asia, it's becoming difficult just simply to rely on English. That's correct. Uh, I would say probably about 10 years ago, um, they, uh, the expats would be able to come over and, and get a job quite easily. But um, more recently, we've seen a lot of links with, uh, with China, where Butonghua, Mandarin, written and um, spoken and read fluency is a, uh, is a must with uh, most jobs. Um, and that's what we're seeing in the market at the moment. Uh, where we may see uh, languages not being such a requirement is potentially niche skill sets or potentially uh, very, very senior roles where they're looking for international or overseas experience, probably at the managing director level and above. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. That's Ricky Moy. I've been pronouncing your name wrong. Uh, Ricky Moy, uh, a director at Robert Walters Asia. Well, it's summertime and the living is easy. And while most of us can't get can't wait to get the party started this weekend, there are those who don't have it so easy as they are working behind the scenes to help folks like us get the party started with ease. That's a lot of parties and a lot of ease. <laughs> uh, we're joined now by Christine Smith-Mann, founder of Easy Peasy Parties. Um, Christine. Good morning, Renita. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So in terms of your particular workload, has the party ended with sort of the holiday seasons and the Easter's and Mother's Day and that kind of thing, or has it just begun? You know, it's the Easy Piece of Parties is, is still a relatively new company. We established about, well, we soft launched a year ago, but the website itself um, hard launched in August last year. So we're still month by month increasing as the word gets out there. But in terms of kind of peaks and troughs of party seasons, it's still on a steady increase. We're expecting it to probably to drop off around, you know, July, August, the summer months here. Um, but as school is winding up, the yeah, June, we're expecting it to be an incredibly busy month. And why is that? That's because of graduations and things like that? Graduations, um, people wanting to have their parties before everyone leaves for the summer. 
um, and just lots of, you know, celebrations, end of school parties, um, Mother's Day, Father's Day, those sorts of things. And, of course, we've also got the, the World Cup coming up. So mm. <clears throat> we haven't had any requests yet, but I'm sure that they'll come in soon as, as kind of people get knocked out and, uh, and, and the World Cup, you know, moves into sort of its finality. And who are these people who are, who, who are giving you the business, who are having the parties? I mean, is this everyone? Is it expats? Is it locals across the board? It's, it is everybody. It's, um, you know, I, I, I have to say our, our market spread is, is fairly mixed. We obviously do have a lot of mothers who are organizing parties for their children. Um, I would say that that, that makes up a big core of our business. Um, we also have a lot of adults who are celebrating anniversaries, children who are organising anniversary parties for their parents, um, people who are just having sort of significant life occasions like celebrating their 30th, 40th, 50th birthday parties, um, and also some corporate events as well. Yeah, tell us about the corporate events. I mean, it seems that, you know, come December 1, every single day is, you know, some kind of company party. I mean, have companies actually started shifting that perhaps? to this time of the year or other times of the year just to you know give everyone a break in December well I you know I <clears throat> I think that people do spread um, their event timetable across the the year simply because December is such an easy uh, sorry busy time of the year um, I you know I do I do realize that June is probably a, a particularly busy month because everybody wants to get their events because July and August just shuts down in Hong Kong and then we'll see it pick up again in September. September's always a very busy month anyway, September, October, November, and then we get a real peak in December as well. Um, but, you know, in sort of complementing all of that is, is, is all of the other personal um, independent parties for, for children and, and families. Mm. And just from the point of view of your business model, I mean, is it a difficult one, you know, to... Does, did you have natural? Uh, do you have a natural sort of customer base that simply just comes to your website? I mean, how easy is this to do? Um, well, Easy Peasy Parties is, is primarily an e-commerce e platform. Mm. Um, it it has supplementary and complementary functions and services on the website, um, such as digital e-cards, virtual gift shops for registering gifts, um, a directory that builds a network of merchants for parties photo sharing and so on. Um, as far as I'm aware, all of these functions and services exist um, indip individually as websites, but Anything there's not to one... make it uh, yeah. easy peasy. So, well, uh, sorry, we're out of time, okay. unfortunately. Lots to talk about. That's uh, Christine Smith, man, founder of Easy Peasy Parties. Thank you so much for joining us this Thanks, morning. Renita. So before we wrap up, the Nikkei is uh, open and down slightly at 15,030, the Australian ASS excuse me, ASX index is also open and down slightly at 5,445. Quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be hot with sunny periods and a few showers. The high will be 32 degrees with light, moderate southwesterly winds. The outlook hot with sunny periods over the next couple of days and also a few showers. It's now time for the news with Samantha Butler. <laughs> 
The United Nations Human Rights Chief Navi Pillay has challenged China to reveal what happened 25 years ago when the military cleared pro-democracy campaigners from Tiananmen Square in Beijing. She said it still wasn't clear how many people had died, with estimates ranging from hundreds to thousands. On the eve of the anniversary, the authorities have clamped down on any attempt to commemorate, discuss or report what happened in 1989. Here's the BBC's John Sudworth. According to Amnesty International, 17 activists have been detained on criminal charges and more than 30 others held under house arrest or have had other restrictions placed on them for their attempts to commemorate or to simply discuss the 1989 crackdown. The Foreign Correspondents Club of China has issued a statement condemning what it calls the increasing harassment and intimidation of the overseas media. One French broadcast team, picked up by the police while interviewing people about their memories of 1989, was interrogated for six hours and made to make a videotaped confession. The police force in Northern Ireland is facing legal action for allegedly withholding evidence about crimes committed by informers during the conflict with the IRA, which fought to end British rule in the province until the 1990s. The BBC's Andy Martin reports from Belfast. Some of the relatives of those killed in Northern Ireland's conflict live with the suspicion that their loved ones were allowed to die in order to protect informers. The police ombudsman scrutinises all aspects of the force, past and present, but Michael Maguire says his investigators have been refused access to sensitive material which he believes may contain intelligence about whether informers were involved in the killings. The police say they have to ensure that lives remain protected when they release information